everyone. This is Rumble with Michael Moore. I'm Michael Moore. Have you ever had just one of those weeks? It's not the big things. It's sometimes just a hundred little things that don't go right. I'm sure I'm not telling you something you haven't already experienced many times, maybe during the last couple and a half years, but, uh, Boy, you just reach a point where you want to watch cartoons or something. And I don't know, this last week has been, it's been one of those weeks. The first thing that happened was that, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've actually taken fairly good care of myself uh, during the pandemic. I've lost 52 pounds, but the reason why I'm not necessarily happy about that is that I'm pretty sure half of that has to be muscle. I've lost muscle. Probably a lot of us have lost muscle because we haven't used our muscles in the normal ways that we did back in normal times. And so it was bothering me. And I thought, you know, we really got to start now getting back to the gym and lifting some weights. Plus I've promised everybody on on my podcast that Trump's not coming back. So I've got, I've got to be in fighting shape here. So, um, so I went to the gym for the first time in a couple of years. So I'm, you know, lifting some weights and I'm doing some, you know, leg lifts and different things. And I don't know what happened. I slipped. I tripped. I don't know. I don't know what happened. All I know is I started to go down. And this is a, this is an old school kind of gym. This is not a frou-frou type place. It's got a a cement floor. It's got, you know, those big truck tires that you got to lift and flip over that kind of place. And I started to go down. I could not believe it. I went straight down on my kneecaps. Man, I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you, but it was the most pain. And my brain is going, fall the rest of the way. Don't stay on your knees like that because they've just gone on to a very hard cement type surface floor. And so I just decided to tip over the rest rest of the way and Bam, my head crashed right on the, the cement floor. I should, I did, it did have sort of a, like a little thin rubber thing on the cement, but basically it was, you know, it was hard enough. So when my head hit the floor, you could hear the crack of my head across the gym and people ran over. I'm going, I'm okay. I'm okay. Step away from the fallen guy. Wow. I just couldn't believe it. I was okay. I just knew like the next day I was going to be in a lot of pain, which I was. My forehead was kind of cut up. You know, my legs were pretty mangled from landing on on my knees like that, but I didn't break anything. Didn't have a concussion. But I also, you know, I thought maybe I wasn't paying attention, getting up from the bench, doing whatever, whatever it was I did. And part of that is because my mind is elsewhere. And before this happened in the, in this last, the week before that, I was kind of down and sad over the fact that I lost a good friend and mentor and somebody who has stood with me for over 25 years.
I'm going to take a minute to thank our underwriters for this podcast of mine. I'm very grateful. And then I'm going to come back. I'm happy to share with you that this podcast is being sponsored by BetterHelp. Thank you, BetterHelp, for supporting my voice and supporting this episode of Rumble. Most of us, are, of course, are quick to show up for our physical well-being, scheduling our annual checkup or dentist appointment or whatever. But often, we put off or bypass altogether showing up for our mental well-being. BetterHelp can help you change that paradigm. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online from the comfort of your own couch, available worldwide to anyone who needs it. When you sign up, you'll fill out a short anonymous questionnaire to help BetterHelp connect you with a professional licensed therapist that fits your needs. And if it's not a great match, BetterHelp makes it easy and free of charge to change therapists, to ensure that you are comfortable and that you're getting the help that you need and you deserve. And most importantly, financial aid is available, making professional therapy more affordable and accessible to everyone. So please visit betterhelp.com slash rumble. That's better help, better and help, H-E-L-P, and then slash rumble in capital letters, rumble. That way you will join over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists now in all 50 states. So here's a special offer for Rumble listeners. You get 10% off your first month of therapy with betterhelp.com slash rumble. That's betterhelp.com slash rumble for 10% off your first month of therapy. Don't be afraid to do this. Your mental health is every bit as important as your physical health. I also want to thank our other underwriter for today's episode, and that is Shopify. You all know Shopify. That's the amazing platform that has been not only a longtime supporter of Rumble, but I'm also grateful for them for being part of our whole thing here with running our our little store online with our hats and t-shirts and other things for you to purchase. There's so many reasons, though, that you yourself can think about starting your own online store, your own online business with Shopify. Maybe you've had some lifelong dream or you're trying to build a better future for yourself or for your nonprofit, for your school, your family. Whatever your reason, Shopify will give you access to all the tools and resources you need to help you start that dream, to grow your own business, to help your school and nonprofit. Last November, that's what they did for me when we launched the Moore Store. And I'm using that to raise money for causes I care about, like voter suppression and returning civics classes to our public schools. But again, it's not just me. Shopify powers millions of businesses and nonprofits around the globe, making it easy for anyone to succeed. So if you or anyone you know is looking to start an online store, go to shopify.com slash rumble. Remember, rumble is all lowercase this time. So it's shopify.com slash rumble, small letters, for a free 14-day trial. You can get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your own business or your nonprofit now with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash rumble right now. Shopify.com slash rumble.
12 days ago, a good friend of mine passed away. His name was Mort Janklau, and he was also my literary agent or book agent. And it was his job to try to get what I wrote out to as many millions of people as possible, and that he did. But he was also kind of a Zen master guru, a person that could talk to about things going on in the world. And in his role as my book agent, he has stood by me during times when those who would try to get in the way of me saying what I wanted to say, he would stand up for me. He was 91. He passed away here just before Memorial Day. So he'd had a long and good life and wonderful wife and kids and, and just kind of quietly told his wife he was going to lay down, go to sleep, and, and that he did. Back in um, 2001, he'd got me a, a book deal to write a book about the first year of George W. Bush and my thoughts about that and a whole bunch of other things. It was called Stupid White Men. Turned out not to be that much about Bush, although he was in it. It was about a whole bunch of things over decades of me living life on this planet as a white guy and uh, what I've seen my, my gender and my uh, people of my race do. And so I just let it all out. But the deal was with Harper Collins, which unfortunately, I probably should have put some thought into this ahead of time, was a publishing company, is a publishing company owned by Rupert Murdoch. And um, they set the publishing date, publishing date meaning the day it's in bookstores. And they, they printed the first 50,000 copies and sent it to, you know, hundreds, thousands of bookstores around the country. And it was to go on sale on September 11th, 2001. And of course... We know what happened on that day. And by noon, HarperCollins had called or sent messages or whatever to all these bookstores around the country telling them to pull my book off the shelves. And they called me and they let me know they were doing that. And they just thought, you know, why, no, you know, why, why, why have this be the publishing date? You know, let's just pull it till we find out what's going on in the world and things calm down. It made sense to me. I, you know, I mean, obviously I was in no mood to, go out on a book tour that day or <laughs> any of the other things they'd had planned. So a week went by and two weeks went by, then a month went by and it's like, what's going to happen with the book when you're putting it back in the bookstores? And they called me and Mort in to their headquarters in New York on Madison Avenue to tell us that they felt like they could not put out a book attacking the president of the United States during a time like this. And they would like me to rewrite about a third of the book and tone it down. Those are the key words, tone it down. And then they hand me, handed me a copy of the book with all the parts marked it red that they wanted taken out. I mean, it was just page after page after page of, you know, let's say a third of the page, some pages complete, the whole page just gone. And I remember saying to them, using the, the line that the, the Bush and the others in power like to use, if you give in to the terrorists, that, that means the terrorists win. 
So you're asking me in a free country to censor myself and take this out and take that out and put something that's not so harsh against George W. Bush. And as I was saying to them across the table that that's not going to happen, Mort pipes in. <laughs> he just says, he's not, he's not changing a goddamn thing. Because <laughs> nothing has changed except everything has changed, making his point why we need change in this country. You know, he just went on. It was so eloquent and I'm making, I'm using this gruff voice. Um, I don't, I still don't, after all these years, I don't have a very good New Yorker voice, but, uh, so we left there at, at kind of a stalemate because they are not going to put the 50,000 copies that they had already printed it to the bookstores. They had pulled them back from the bookstores and now they were in a, I don't know, a warehouse or whatever. This is like a month after 9-11. And they said, well, you should think about it because we're not putting this book out. So there wasn't much to think about. I just, I didn't know what to do for the next month. I was like, at this point, we're in November. They're not putting the book out. Mort, you know, is threatening them. I have a contract with them, et cetera, et cetera. And um, on uh, November 30th, 2001, my editor there, nice guy, called me up and, and said, um, well, the people here, the corporate, the honchos, have uh, decided that not only are they not going to put the book out now, uh, they're going to pulp. Pulp. I never heard that word in that way before. They're going to pulp all 50,000 copies they printed, meaning they were going to recycle them into, I guess, new paper for new books. And it was like, I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. I called Mort. I told him, well, what are we going to do? And he says, we'll have a plan. Don't worry. Just, I said, I know I'm supposed to go out and speak at Rutgers tomorrow. They're having a labor conference. And they want me to come out and give a talk. And I don't want to do that. No, no, you should go do it. Go do it. So I did the next day. It was a Saturday, December 1st. I remember thinking a day, I always think on December 1st, that's the day Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the Montgomery bus. And um, I went out to Rutgers and I took a copy. I had an advanced copy of the book. And I said, you know, I, I was supposed to talk about something here today, but I'm I'm so distraught because uh, HarperCollins is going to pulp every copy of my book that they've printed. They're just going to turn it into waste and then recycle it. So you may be the only people that get to hear anything from this book. If you don't mind, instead of giving a talk, I'd rather, if I could read a chapter or two to you. And they applauded and, and I did that. And, and I didn't know that in the back of the room, uh, there was a librarian. Why would I know there's a librarian in the back of the room? There's a librarian. And, uh, she heard this whole thing and she went home and went online and got into a librarian chat room and told all these other librarians that HarperCollins is, is going to destroy, literally destroy my book. And a few days later, I get a call from some executive uh, at HarperCollins. I can't remember now who it was. <laughs> I put so much of this out of my head. 
screaming at me. What'd you tell the librarians? What? What did you say to the librarians? I said, I don't know any librarians. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, there's like a hundred of them outside the, our building here picketing us, saying that we banned your, how do they know we banned your, we didn't ban your book. You refused to rewrite it. I said, look, you've made your decision. Why are you bothering me? I don't know anything about any librarians. Well, their picket got in Publishers Weekly, then the New York Times, and all of a sudden everybody knew that HarperCollins was going to pulp, destroy my book and, and not let the American people or anybody around the world read it. And the editorials began against HarperCollins and more protests. And finally they called Morton and me back over to the building and, and said, um, Okay. Uh, oh, and the, oh, there was the Mordak guy was at the head of the table. Uh, you knew him because he had the Australian accent. It's okay. You win. They said to me, you win. Here's the deal. We're going to put the book back in the bookstores, but we're not printing any more copies. It's that 50,000. That's it. And there's, there will be no book tour. We will not spend one dime on advertising. We'll put them in the store. That's it. That's, we're done. We're done with you. We're done with the book. Good riddance. Um, one of them said to me, what kind of book career do you think you're going to have after this? Who's going to want to publish you? You're such trouble. Who would want this trouble? So maybe you should have thought of that. Uh, you know, more, you're going to have a difficult time trying to get him a, another book deal. And so we left and they set the publication date. I think it was the first, first or second Tuesday of February of, of 2002. So the book came out on that day, on that Tuesday. And by Friday, they were already in their ninth printing of the book. It was selling out so fast every day in bookstores across the country. They couldn't keep up with it. It eventually had, oh, geez, something like 60-some printings. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, well, it was number one for, oh, geez, I don't know, 30 weeks, 25, 30 weeks. And then it stayed on there for, I think, 69 weeks as the hardcover. Then when the paperback came out, I mean, it just, it, it sold millions and millions of copies. It sold a million copies just in Germany. It sold a million copies just in the U.K., I mean, it's literally millions around the world got to read Stupid White Men. This book that they said they'd never print another copy of. Of course, I don't need to explain to you. One of the beauties of capitalism is the, what's the old line that the capitalist will sell you the rope to hang himself with? If they believe they can make a buck off it, they don't really care what you're saying. You can attack Bush all you want if they're selling millions of copies of a book. It's just... The irony often sometimes works in our favor because ultimately any business, that's that's what they care about, right? The do-re-mi. Man, but if I hadn't had more Janklau, I don't know. I don't know if I would have gotten through this. He's considered, was considered the probably the top book agent in the country, certainly in New York. Uh, most of his clients were all these people that were not like me. They were, you know, Danielle Steele and Judith Krantz and uh, Anne Rice and 
but he was also the book agent for Jimmy Carter and the Pope. And then he had a, a few of us renegades and Gore Vidal and myself and others. But um, all through the pandemic, he checked in with me at least every other month. I heard from him, how's the new book coming? How you doing? Send me chapters. You know, it's just it never stopped his support. And even though he had sort of semi-retired from his own company, he made it clear that he was still, he was still my, my literary agent. Just a couple of weeks before he died, he sent me an email, just checking in. How you doing? How you holding up? And um, and I remember being really busy that day, that week, and you know I put it in the queue to respond to him, and and of course I didn't in time, and he died. And um, I think we've all had that feeling, right, with people we've lost. You want that last conversation. You want, you want that last. I don't know whatever that is. It's it's this is not an unusual thing, but I didn't get to have that last go around, that last talk, that you know, his take on what's going on in the world. It's always so fascinating to me, and and um, you know when you when you do the things I do. You need people in your corner that are going to fight for you because the system is set up to make sure my voice isn't heard. Just like for many of you, it would be, they don't want to hear from us. Of course they don't. They should, they, they, you know, we're out to, we're not here to put a bandaid on things. We want real change and we want it now. And, and I've had a few of these individuals like Moore Janklaw who would stand with me no matter what, no matter what. I have the same thing too with my, my agent there and uh, for my films and TV, Hollywood stuff, you know, R. Emanuel is that kind of person. He just, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 there would have saw the light of day had he not been willing to go on the record with the New York Times to tell them how Disney, which owned Miramax at that time, refused to release my film because they, they didn't want to upset the governor of Florida because they were going to expand Disney World down there and they wanted to get tax breaks and all that. And so they were going to kill my film about Bush because Jeb Bush was the governor. I was thinking about that last month with DeSantos going after Disney. It's like... like how many things have just kind of flipped on their head during this time we're in right now. But if you are able to see a movie of mine or read a book or somehow I'm on television, trust me, it wasn't easy. There was a lot of rigmarole that I and others went through just so that you could hear my voice. I've written a little bit about it in my, in my books and I've talked a little bit about it on this podcast, but I think someday here, I'm going to share some of these stories that are just, it would, I don't think it'll make your head spin because you'd probably go, of course, you know, they, why are they even letting him say anything? Hmm. My best to Mort's wife, Linda, 
Jeez, they've been married since I think the 1950s, 19, late 50s, early 60s. Um, wonderful people. Linda's father was Mervyn Leroy, who was the producer of The Wizard of Oz <laughs> and a director of a number of films back in the 30s and 40s. And her grandfather is Harry Warner, one of the five uh, Warner brothers. And the stories, just having a lunch or dinner with them, and just this, the stories of old Hollywood, and just incredible information and inspiration for this great art form known as the cinema. But more, it was in my life to help me get my books out there, get me the right publisher and so I've had, what is it? I've had eight, I think eight books I've written. And in some part, thanks to his encouragement and to his battling for getting what I needed to get in the stores, to get out to the people, all eight of those books ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm grateful to him for that, but I'm, I'm more grateful for just the, the company that I got to keep with him. And what I got to learn about this world, the other parts of the world, the peek behind the curtain that growing up in a factory family in Flint, Michigan would never give you. And to be able to learn that and deal with it and to have somebody stand by your side, it's a very powerful thing. So my condolences and my love, my best to Linda, his widow, his two kids who are not kids anymore. It's, um, I don't know. There are other people that I've known, other friends that have died during the pandemic because of the pandemic. And that's been difficult. We've lost a lot of creative people, a lot of people in the arts. And so whoever we are coming out of this pandemic, they won't be forgotten and they will live on in us in the work we do, and we move forward. I feel today, tonight, that I've, I've, I've lost, I don't know how to put this. I'm a little less protected. I don't mean to make this about myself, but you know, more, he was only five days away from his 92nd birthday anyway. He was still working. His, his assistant told me that he, that before he went to bed that night that he passed away, he watched two documentaries. <laughs> he was just such, a, he was so smart and he could outsmart all the bad people. And now what do I do? <laughs> Well, you know, I'm of an age now where I've, I've seen enough and I've learned enough and I know how to, how to fight the good fight, how not to give up and to look for people where I can help them. I can help protect them. I can help get their movies made or their books published or whatever. So all good will come of this. But on just a personal level, I think as I wrap this up, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, of this loss, I guess. And, and so it goes.
All right, my friends, thanks for letting me share all that with you. I'm okay. I hope you're okay. I really hope you're okay. Because we don't have another choice here in terms of what we have to do. So be well. Treat yourself well. Thanks to my producer and editor, Angela Vargos, and thanks to all of you. <laughs>